Good morning. Am I on? Okay. Um, it's great to be with you guys this morning. And uh, if you're a visitor here growing up, uh, my family would occasionally break out of their comfort zone and we'd try a new place to eat. And afterwards, the question would be posed to my dad what he thought about the restaurant, and he would respond with, I made two trips today, my first and my last. <laughs> and I hope that doesn't prove to be the case with you. And, and our, our pastor, as uh, Pastor John had said, he's spending time with his family, enjoying the great outdoors, and he will be back next week. We'd love to see you here again and get to know you guys a little bit better. Uh, but my hope today is that we all leave here with a deeper understanding of the profound truths of God's mercy in Christ Jesus. Our text today comes from Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity um, that you have given all of us to come and hear your word and to be changed by it and be transformed by it and in a way that only your spirit can do. And Father, I know that there are some who can't make it here today, and I pray that you uh, comfort them and strengthen them and encourage them. Uh, it seems that hope is far, too far to be reached, but we know that's not the case through Christ. And I pray that you remind them of that today and every day. And I pray that you remove distractions from all of us and that we can be attentive to what your spirit has to say. In your name we pray, amen. There's a danger in Christianity to deviate from a living a life of faith in response to God's mercy and to drift into a lifestyle of offering God our best efforts. When that belief displaces the truths of the gospel, we start to find ourselves living by legalism. We begin to measure our spiritual health by what we do or don't do. We're never late to church. We don't drink as much as that guy. We don't use profanity. I know God is pleased with me because I forced the gospel on 20 people last week, even though they didn't want to hear it, but I persevered. <laughs> Society, and even some in the church, believe that Christianity needs to be done by observing a bunch of rules and regulations. But God's will for the believer is to actively live a life pleasing to him. And a pleasing life to God, as we will see in the text, must be a spirit-led life built on God's mercies rather than man-driven life built on how good we do Christianity. And to understand the big picture of our text, we're going to take a slight detour to get some context by what Paul means by the mercies of God in chapter 12. And notice that Paul begins his chapter with a therefore that implies we need to find out why the therefore is therefore. In chapters 1 through 11, Paul helps us understand why Christ alone is necessary, necessary for us to be restored to relationship with God. He makes quite clear that you and I are incapable of working ourselves out of sin, and God's mercy is, towards humanity is made evident by the fact that no one can earn it. In Romans 3.11, we read that there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. He goes on in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
we start to understand that mankind is not as good in the eyes of God as some may think. And Paul is not saying that there aren't nice people here or that people didn't hold doors to the old ladies at the grocery store. He's not speaking about the heart of mankind on the horizontal plane, but rather the vertical. And he's letting us know that as it relates to our relationship with God being restored, we can offer nothing God would accept as a full or even partial payment in exchange for our salvation. It's incompatible with the gospel message to say that Christ paid 90% of our sin and the last 10% is left for us to earn by works. Nor does Christ just give us the potential to do good works so that we can dig ourselves out of our own holes. He completely paid in full what God demanded from our sin because no man past, present, or future could fulfill what God required. And he did so purely out of grace and mercy. The bad news, Romans 6.23 says that for the wages of sin is death, but the good news is the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The mercies of God are not conditional upon how you and I might be or can be because we will never be. It is only through Christ entirely that we are redeemed to God from our sin. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. And verse 7 is simply saying that it would be highly improbable for you and I to even fathom giving our lives up for a stranger. But even if they were a good person, if they were Billy Graham or Mother Teresa, we might consider it. It's conditional. God does not work on the conditional grounds of giving his son for us as evident in verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the results, we are justified, that is to be declared righteous and accepted by God because of Christ who makes us new. We are no longer enslaved and utterly hopeless to a life of sin. Romans 8, 1 says, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul spends a lot of time in making his case for salvation in Christ by faith alone in the past 11 chapters, and now he answers the question, what do we do about it? God's mercy is great, but how do we respond? Does Christianity stop at the altar call at church? Is our primary purpose to memorize all the songs that come on K-Love? Or is it to be more spiritual than the guy sitting next to you in the pew? If we don't answer these questions biblically, we are then left to our own speculation, which opens the doors for pride in our own abilities to please God. In chapter 12, Paul gives us the rubber-meets-the-road application on how we ought to respond in light of God's mercies. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Because of God's mercy, we are to worship him with our life. In verse 1, Paul urges or pleads with his brethren in faith to live by the mercies of God. He does not invoke his apostolic authority in order to dictate their lives for him. John Piper makes the observation that had he done this, it would be as though a parent telling their child not to do something just because they said so. 
That form of obedience produces just another form of legalism because someone with credentials or authority told them to do it this way. And the urge is because of God's mercy. Back up. Paul knows that what pleases God is a life lived in response to the impact of his mercy, not by an obligatory response to the parental, I told you so. Paul even addresses them as brethren. He's in this with them as a brother of Christ, and his plea is not to urge them to be a bunch of decaying legalists. His desire is to teach them that what pleases God is a complete surrender of our lives to our salvation in Christ. And this remains true for you and I today. And he urges, because of God's mercies, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. Now, obviously, Paul doesn't mean that you and I are to literally kill ourselves for God like the sacrifices in the Old Testament. But since our old, former self has been crucified with Christ, we are now to live in our new, redeemed self to glorify God, to worship him. In the Old Testament, animal sacrifices were used to atone or account for a person's sin against God. And whoever presented the animal to be used in the sacrifice would, as Matthew Henry writes, transfer their rights, title, and interest in it to God on account of their sin. And though you and I do not literally kill ourselves, we do relinquish our rights to our entire being to be presented to God for his purposes and his will. Paul states that doing this is what logically follows in response to God's saving mercy. And we do this in the form of worship. We worship God not just here at Crossway on Sunday mornings, but each and every day through obedience to God's will as it is written in his word. We give up things that we used to be enslaved to, for example, people-pleasing, degrading our husbands and wives, or getting lost in a 12-pack every night after work, or even thinking that God owes us one because of the moral lives that we live. After salvation, as Cal made evident last week, we aren't the same people we used to be. We have been made new in Christ, and we live sacrificially in the sense that we no longer practice lawless deeds because God's mercies are infinitely more valuable and life-changing than they ever could be. We can't earn his mercy, yet through his son, we have complete assurance in our salvation. It is from this truth that Paul urges us to present our bodies to God in the form of a worshipful obedience. And because of our salvation in Christ, it is acceptable or well-pleasing to God. And it can be tough at times. It doesn't come naturally to us. It's a sacrifice, but it would be an understatement to say it's worth it. Giving our lives as sacrifices to serve God not only pleases him, but our hearts and our lives are transformed into Christ-likeness in the process. We don't live to gain God's mercy, but to worship him in obedience because his mercy has already been given to us by Christ. However, Paul still warns, warns us about the snare of integrating into the pattern of this age in verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because of God's mercy, we are to be shaped by his word, not by popular opinion. I think many of us have heard the phrase that though we live in the world, we are not to be partakers of the world. And Paul knew that the temptation is real for believers or a body of believers to incorporate society's values into Christian living. 
for example, all people go to heaven. God didn't really define marriage between one man and one woman. We are true Christians because we don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. (laughs) But the more subtle question is, why do we live the way that we do? Is it because of the gospel or because we have yielded to the constant pressure of popular opinion? We are immersed in a culture that completely rejects Christ as the only way of salvation and therefore believes that our sole purpose is to live lives as good as we can by our own definition of what good means. The world's set of beliefs denounces God's unconditional love in Christ. The world would believe that God's mercy is starting to wear thin and we just need to try a little bit harder. Maybe bend Christianity a little bit more to be more palatable with what society defines as right or wrong. These are all worldly forms of Christianity and they are not compatible with the word of God. They all originated with Satan who since the beginning of time has been trying to lead men astray from the truth of God. In Genesis 3.1, Eve doubted what God said to be true because Satan was manipulating and twisting the word of God when he asked the question of, did God really say you must not eat of this tree? It is a lie of Satan to think that we can live a life by the world's standards of righteousness and still be acceptable and pleasing in the sight of God. But we cannot will ourselves to do God's will. That is a man-powered life, and we cannot be transformed in godliness by softening God's words till they go down easier. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Transformed by the renewing of your mind, what does that mean? Here in the Greek, uh, the word used for transform is where we get our word metamorphosis from, which is the phenomenon, as you and I know, when the caterpillar changes into the butterfly. But you, of course, are not caterpillars, so how do we become metamorphosized? Do we have to have the latest Bible exposition software on our computer? Or does it mean that we sit behind a big mahogany desk in a dark-lit room filled with pipe smoke as we sip our scotch on the rocks thinking about why the world's so screwed up? It could be, but those things in and of themselves will not transform you and I the way Paul means. We are transformed when we obediently respond to the prompting of God's spirit by his word in our life. We aren't being transformed here in the sense of the text when we just obey because it's the Christian thing to do. We in and of ourselves cannot produce that desire. Our minds, our emotions, our will, our intellect are changed by the Holy Spirit using the word of God to chip, cut, grind everything away from us that is not of God with the purpose of transforming us into Christ-likeness. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In Psalm 19, as Pastor John read, says the law or word of God, it restores our souls, it enlightens our eyes, it causes our hearts to rejoice. And the word of God is God's way, not the world's way of transforming us by renewing or the renovating of our minds by changing how we think. Through the constant transforming work of the Spirit in our lives, we are able to discern and obey God's will for his children. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. 
that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Because of God's mercy, we prove that his will is perfect. I had a professor that used to say in class all the time that the proof of the pudding is in the tasting. And this is true when it comes to verifying if God's will is in fact good and acceptable and perfect. We can know what the Bible teaches, but how can we empirically verify its claims in our lives? We live God's way in faith. We know that God wants us to worship him in a way that is acceptable in verse 1. And we know God does not want us to integrate society's values in our lives. And we also know that we are transformed in our thinking by God's word. But if God wants us to live lives pleasing to him by being transformed in our thinking by his word, how does that happen? Well, the proof of God's claims is in the doing. I've often heard people say things like, I tried Jesus for a bit and it didn't do anything for me, so I quit going to church, and now I'm doing my own thing. Or, I was told that Jesus would make my life easier, and if I had enough faith, I'd be wealthy. But my life isn't any easier, and I still have to work my Monday through Saturday 9-to-5 job to make ends meet. These stories are not evidences against the transforming power of God, as if to say he ran out of gas, or because I'm free of struggles, or because I'm not free of struggles in life, this will of God Christian thing is a big sham. When manufacturers make a product, whether a machine or a tool, it usually has a manual that comes with it to specify its intended purpose and how to use it properly to achieve the purpose in which it was designed. Sometimes people are dismayed when they think they bought a piece of junk because what they have doesn't work the way that they wanted it to. Only to find out upon further investigation, the machine works just fine, but because the manual wasn't read and understood, the machine was being used improperly and left the user disgruntled. The problem the whole time was not the machine. It was, as the construction term goes, operator error. <laughs> Likewise, many people want to obey God's will for their lives and be transformed. They see that it says it has transforming power and capabilities. But contrary to what the psalmist writes in Psalm 19, our souls will never be satisfied, nor will our hearts be rejoicing, by living in our own strengths and abilities. We can't fabricate our own plan that would transform us the way God's word does. His intended purpose for the believer is to completely rest on the finished work of Christ. And it is his purpose for us to serve him in whatever capacity that he gives to us through a life of worship. Again, Matthew Henry writes, we mistake our religion if we look upon it only as a system of notions and guide to speculation. No, it is a practical religion that tends to the right ordering of conversation, and it is designed not only to inform our judgments, but to transform and reform our hearts and lives. God's will or desire may not be as abstract as we may think. I do understand that we may not know where we're going to be or what we're going to be doing 10, 15 years down the road, that's the variable, but the constant is that God's conduct, as seen in his will for the believer, in response to his mercies, stay the same regardless of where we are or what we do. It pleases God for us to obey his will, and it only logically follows that if God is pleased when we do his will, then he must make his will known for us to do. And some examples of God's will for the life of the believer can be found all over scripture and even later on in chapter 12 of Romans. For example, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says that 
for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then going on into chapter 12 of Romans, we see that if you find yourself in a position of leadership, it tells us to lead with diligence. Don't be a slacker if you're telling everybody else to work harder. Showing mercy, without, showing mercy with cheerfulness. Don't give someone in need a helping hand begrudgingly out of compulsion. Persevering in tribulation, knowing that whatever you're going through can't strip you from the hands of Christ. Devoted to prayer. Even when it seems like God isn't listening, he cares and he wants you to cast your anxieties on him. Loving without hypocrisy. Don't give preferential treatment to somebody because they smell better than the other guy. Never repay evil for evil. Don't exchange insults with a person just because they don't like your political candidate. These are all but examples, but a few examples of God's will for the believer found all over Scripture. Living lives by a bunch of rules and regulations is not what our faith is built on. It is built on our rock, Jesus Christ. And it is from that foundation that God's spirit gives us a faith to obey God's will as we know it from his word. And from a spirit of obedience in God's will, in light of his mercies in Christ, we are transformed and blessed entirely by his power that no man can fathom. We prove in our living proof that his will is good, that no other philosophy in life can transform the heart and mind God's way does. His will is good, or his will is acceptable. Our lives live God's way is what he wants, and his will is perfect. It lacks nothing. All too often we can become busy. There's always someone or something demanding our attention, and keeping a filled-up schedule can callous our hearts to what was so fresh in our minds at our time of conversion. If that's you today, I would like to exhort you and the rest of us, for that matter, to pick a time this weekend. It doesn't have to be hours and hours, but 15 minutes or so, just you alone, meditating on the mercies that we have through God and Christ. Not only that, but we have full assurance of salvation, and we did absolutely nothing to earn it. That's the good news of the gospel, and it's from the truth of God's mercy that our lives are propelled to live for God's glory and not ours. Let's pray. Father, again, we know that from our perspective here on earth, life happens. We go through things that if it were up to us, we would not put ourselves through or allow ourselves to go through. But nonetheless, it's in those opportunities and in our everyday lives that we are living examples of the hope and the change of Christ in us. Father, we, we pray that we could meditate on your word and your truth and we could remain confident and hopeful despite what we go through in life. God, you are a great God. You are merciful and nothing can take away our salvation we have in Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you answer prayer and you hear our pleas, you hear our cries, you hear our desires and we are transformed by your power that only you alone can bring. 
We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.